Abu Bakar Nur Khalil is the CEO at Recursive Capital, a board member of Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z's B-Trust, and the co-founder at Kala, an organization designed to help educate the next generation of Bitcoin engineers in Africa. In our conversation, we covered everything. We got into investing in lightning companies, uh, building in Nigeria and Africa more broadly. We discussed this 500 Bitcoin trust set up by Jack and Jay-Z and how this money is gonna be spent most effectively. Uh, and we also discussed uh, Abu Bakar's role in education and, and helping this next generation of African engineers succeed and, and build on Bitcoin. Um, just a quick shout out before we get into the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Voltage. Voltage is the premier provider of Bitcoin and Lightning Node infrastructure. Uh, we will have more from Voltage later in the show in the Lightning Round. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Abu Bakar, nice to meet you. I'm really excited to chat with you about all the things you're working on in Bitcoin right now. Before we get into it though, why don't we start with how you first learned about Bitcoin and how you first learned about the Lightning Network? Nice, so it's, it's one of those things that started really, you know, kind of at the same time that a lot of other people did start, I guess. 2017 had probably one of the largest onboardings, I guess, from just learning about people's history and how they got into the space. So mine's also similar, but just to give kind of more of a background before that, you know, in 2013, my older brother came back with this YouTube video that was trying to explain what Bitcoin was. And at the time I was like 14. So really I don't understand what, what, what the video is talking about. What I got from it was that it was like a contest where you win some digital currency, whatever that meant. So that was kind of the first time I had an entry into Bitcoin. And really after that, didn't really think about it. 2015, I started watching Mr. Robot, which was kind of the first time I saw hacking demystified, so to speak. And then that kind of got me interested in the whole privacy, hacking, you know, computers, all of that. So I was still brewing within my, I guess, subconscious. And then in 2017 was when I fully got into Bitcoin. So came up again, and then I started learning more about Bitcoin, you know, reading up articles. Initially, obviously, I didn't understand anything I was reading, you know, shots and five, six, all of that, because I had no background in computing or anything like that. So a lot of technical things were just going off on my head. So around that time was after I graduated from high school. So that was around 2017, graduated in 2016. So the plan on my end was to go into college and actually become an architect, which, you know, thank God I didn't go through with that. So I decided I might as well, you know, explore this computing scene since I'm going to be reading a lot of this material. I don't understand it. So it makes sense to just go over, you know, the basics and then walk my way through so I understand what I'm reading. So yeah, I started learning basics about programming. You know, I taught myself how to code um, basics, how a program works, you know, compilers, all that kind of stuff. So then towards the tail end was when I started at least understanding some of the basics, like what is a hash function and all that kind of stuff. And then 2018 was when I started really programming in Python and then I think JavaScript as well. So in Python, I did a few, you know, pet projects, like I built a programming language, all that kind of stuff to get a sense of what's really going on under the metal, so to speak. And then I did a few other projects using Electron JS with JavaScript, a little bit of C and C++, but not too much. And then in 2019 was when I started focusing more on the protocol level of Bitcoin. So we started reading up more about how Bitcoin core works, uh, started reading the Bitcoin wikis and all that kind of stuff. And then October that year was when, you know, I saw a pull request by 
by Takimbo, which was the first time I saw, you know, protocols coming out of Nigeria. And I was really, really impressed and that kind of inspired my my going ahead to take a shot at Oporo Quest. So before that, I hadn't come out Bitcoin Core at all. I just knew about the repo, you know, and checking it out. So in October, they, they usually have, you know, open source products in general. They usually have like a Hacktoberfest. So they have good first issues for beginners and then introducing to the, I guess, the repos. And then you have these minor good first issues I work on. So I picked up one of them. And then that was my first entry, I guess, into the ecosystem. And that was the first time I saw it. The, the reality of how the ecosystem is within the dev ecosystem specifically. So that's the first time I was like, hmm, these guys aren't toxic. <laughs> they aren't like the Bitcoin crowd. So they're really, really welcoming. I mean, a lot of the questions I was asking that, you know, in hindsight were kind of stupid, but they still managed to walk me through it. So I met a lot of the developers there, you know, um, I guess uh, people like Habasto, you know, the stack, all these other people and Vladimir, who's uh, the, the lead maintainer of the project. So it was really interesting going through kind of that that whole experience, I learned a lot, you know, compiling Bitcoin Core, some of how the pull requests, um, the flow works, so how code is reviewed, um, squashing commits, all that kind of stuff. So it really helped with my entire understanding of how the repo works, all the way from opening a pull request to it getting merged. That was the first time I contributed to Core, and then I got merged in 2020, I think early 2020. So yeah, after that, you know, just to give kind of some more background with regards to how recursive started, in 2018, you know, we're having conversations with my older brother again about, you know, starting a fund. And he was like, you know what, we might as well do this. We can't wait for foreign capital to come in and fund these projects. And there's already capital here in Africa. So we might as well pull these funds and then invest into startups in, these, in the ecosystem. So like, yeah, you know, it makes a lot of sense. That kind of died out. And then 2019 started talking more about it. And then 2020 was only officially launched recursive in February. So that was also interesting from the perspective of seeing seeing the ecosystem kind of mapping it out from the perspective of an investor rather than a developer so that was really intriguing as well and then around that time 2020 i think or 2019 was when i started talking to other people in the ecosystem like uh, bernard for example which was in hindsight really really great because i got to really see how the startup spaces specifically bitcoin companies and then 2022 was the time that i got into chain code so the chain codes that i do for lightning and bitcoin so to answer your question with regards to Lightning, I knew about Lightning in around 2019, but it was kind of high level, just you know, payment channels, how how that works on the high level. So I didn't know anything about HTLCs and all of that until I did the chain code um, study groups, which was huge and, and quite a lot of fun. It was really tasking, but that's how chain code is. And that's really the best way to get devs to really understand some of these materials, especially with Lightning, I mean, if you have your first pass into Lightning, you might not understand it. It takes quite a while for a lot of it to sink in. So that was really incredible, especially getting to see some of the developers that are actually working in the space. So, you know, um, individuals like, uh, like uh, what do you call it? Um, some of the individuals that work in Lightning Labs, for example, and some individuals that ended yeah. up working in Lightning Labs, like um, El Newton, for example. So yeah, it was really cool to kind of get a feel of those that are actually in the space. Same thing for Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin study group as well, which I met some people like, you know, John Attack and some of the other developers that actually work either in companies in the Bitcoin space or actually work contributing to core. So that was interesting as well. And then you now towards the tail end of 2020 was when we started talking more, you know, with Bernard about how to really fix up the ecosystem. Because from the perspective of recursive, one of the challenges we initially had was the ecosystem was really, really not developed to a stage where 
at least the point where we thought it was, because you know, we get a lot of um, a lot of hype, so to speak, on on Twitter about how the ecosystem is maturing and all of that. But at the time, there wasn't really anything going on. Really, there are very few Bitcoin companies. A lot of what was happening in the space is really in the wider crypto space, which is you know, um, what would I say? What is now known as Web three, I guess, which is basically Ethereum, shitcoin projects, and all of that. So that's kind of how the conversations are going. So we decided to formalize some pathway for individuals to go in from developers in the space all the way to becoming Bitcoin developers and Lightning developers too. So that's kind of how Gala came to be. So in 2021, when we launched Gala. And then, you know, with regards to recursive as well, when we started, we had this idea of trying to coin all the all the innovations that's happening in the space. So we thought Web3 was a good way to term it. And then obviously, there's a reason why we had to rebrand was because, you know, at the end of the day, we figured out that the term Web3 became co-opted by the Ethereum gang. So what ended up happening was we're getting some influx of crypto projects. So things that are outside of Bitcoin, which are like, this is probably because of how we're wording our thesis. So we had to rebrand. We did the rebrand in 2021. And then the focus was just to streamline it to make it clear that all the innovation we're talking about and the the projects, you know, um, companies and everything are specifically in the Bitcoin space. So we're talking about companies that have to do with financial sovereignty, which we believe Bitcoin is the prime example of how to get financially sovereign, I guess, as an individual. Another thing is with regards to the privacy angle, so encryption as a right, all that kind of online sovereignty, so to speak. So all of that is within the context of Bitcoin. So that's kind of what the operating thesis is now for Bitcoin for recursive capital. So that's kind of the, how do I say, how it's gotten into the space, where is that? And then with Btrust, you know, the application was open. My older brother sent it to me on Twitter. And he was like, you might as well try this. And I was like, mm, you know, there are a lot of OGs in the space already. And I'm seeing a lot of dimensions. So who am I to think I could get him? So yeah, you know, we spoke a bit. Mine's convinced me. I was like, you know, worst case scenario, you don't get it. Anymore. What's the big deal then? And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. So I applied. It took quite a while for them to get back to us, which now we know why, because you know, 7,000 plus people apply, so it makes sense. So they got yeah. back to us and I was like, at the time I even thought, you know, I didn't get in, hence why I didn't get any reply, but I was really excited about getting the reply. And then from then on, it was stage by stage. So it was mostly getting a feel of what our perspective is with regards to the space, so challenges, um, what are the solutions to those challenges? Because obviously it's easy to point out challenges, but solutions are a lot more difficult to come up with. So. It, we did all of that, going through writing, all of that, all the way to video interviews and streams. So it was really a fascinating experience. I learned quite a lot during that time because it gave me a chance to actually reflect and go, hey, Abuka, calm down. You want to contribute to the space, say there are all these problems, how do we go about fixing it? So it was really, really like an eye-opening experience for me when it comes to you know sitting down and kind of mapping out what the context were, the context that we're at or that we're in, and then seeing how we could actually bridge those gaps and get to a stage where we want to be in terms of Bitcoin, uh, growing the Bitcoin ecosystem. So yeah, that's kind of how the entire thing went through. So how I got into the space, the state of all the projects and everything. <laughs> right. That's an amazing story. And, um, you know, just to recap here, you, you've gone through Chaincode, you are a Bitcoin core contributor, Kala co-founder, uh, B-Trust board member, CEO at Recursive all very focused on Bitcoin. 
And like right from the get-go, it seemed like Bitcoin was your calling here. Um, what, what motivates you to get up every morning and specifically build on Bitcoin? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, the thing with Bitcoin is we have to look at it holistically, really, because there are a lot of products in the space, like you mentioned. And over the years, you know, it might interest a few folks to know that initially I was quite open to Ethereum when I was going into the into space like 2017, 18, to a point where I actually thought it was at least a viable competitor to Bitcoin. But then later on, I realized the amount of complexity on that type of system will only keep increasing, especially with going to the switching from proof of work to proof of stake, because they're essentially trying to reinvent the wheel. So there's that. So a lot of what happened over time was me understanding some of the unique properties about of Bitcoin, so to speak. So things like, you know, censorship resistance, there isn't any other project that has that type of capability. So we're talking about um, right now, I guess what you'd be saying is having it as being a superior monetary system, really, and monetary network from perspective, allowing global cheap <laughs> instant payments, you know, via the Lightning Network, for example, and even on-chain Bitcoin as well, it allows you to have a system that doesn't discriminate, number one, because that's a huge issue with the current system with, you know, um, Swift and corresponding banking. So if you're someone in Nigeria, which we do have some of these challenges, if you're trying to pay for online services and even just generally using fiat payment rails, there are a lot of restrictions with regards to either how much money you're allowed to spend, which ironically is supposed to be your money, but you know, people have to understand that once you get involved with banks, it's no longer your money, which is something that Bitcoin helps shed light on. You know, before Bitcoin, I didn't really know how a lot of these things work, but that's another reason. And another thing is with regards to the general idea of freedom, so if you think about it, the moment we see any sort of clamping down on whether it's human rights or individual rights, either as a country or nation states, what we tend to see is people moving towards adopting Bitcoin. And that's not a coincidence, really. I don't see it as a coincidence. I see it as a direct result of the fact that Bitcoin is freedom money. So the moment you have some of these crises around the world, whether it's for, you know, whether it's protests or you're having an authoritative regime or you're having any sort of infringement on rights, you tend to see people flock to Bitcoin and it's not the same for any other project. And like I said, that's the result of it uniquely being, you know, um, a monetary network, an asset that allows you to really become self-sovereign from that perspective. So I think just to cut it up, you know, into, into a single answer, it definitely be because Bitcoin is freedom money. And again, if you're allowing individuals to have this sort of freedom, remove some of the constraints that they see. So even from the perspective of like um, financial sovereignty, or we're talking about financial inclusion, especially with individuals that don't have bank accounts, not because they can't get one, but because there are a lot of challenges with opening a bank account and maintaining it. Again, with some of the service charges that people experience with bank accounts, the same isn't applied for Bitcoin. For example, there is no service charge and all those kind of things. You actually own your money. No one can spend your money on your behalf. Another thing, obviously, is with regards to how cheap it is for you to actually spend those Bitcoins. So with a lot of these other products, especially Ethereum that likes to be touted as, you know, Bitcoin's competitor, you see a lot of the issues around individuals not being able to actually use this monetary network from the perspective of individuals that are not, you know, super rich or uber rich. So these are average folks that are just trying to send money back and forth, either for remittance or even local commerce. So Bitcoin solves a lot of that. It streamlines that entire flow from perspective of allowing you to have access to a global monetary network that's cheap, fast, and instant, especially with integration of the Lightning Network. If you think about it, fine. 
all the way in, you know, some other country outside of Africa, like let's say Chicago or, you know, Hong Kong, for example, number one, I won't face any restrictions with regards to sending money back home. What I end up sending is a large chunk of the actual money, especially through the Lightning Network. So if I was going to send, you know, $100, for example, I could do that instantly via the Lightning Network. If I was going to send 100000 I'll do that instantly via the Lightning Network. Another thing is people like to say, oh, you know, you could send large amounts to via regular fiat monetary networks. But the thing is, you can't do that cheaply and instantly. It's impossible. And you could only do that via Bitcoin. Yeah. So a lot of these benefits that we have that range the entire, or should I say, span the entire monetary context, so to speak, is it's only possible to do with Bitcoin. All their projects fail at some point. Um, whether we're talking about um, censorship resistance, instant uh, settlements or cheap instant settlements, a lot of that combination of uh, value that we see in, in Bitcoin, a lot of the products simply do not have that. So again, that's the main reason why I feel it's very, very important for us to not only build on Bitcoin, but to really grow the ecosystem. So education, pushing it out to people, because again, those who are supposed to benefit from all these values are average folks and they can benefit from it if they don't know about it. So a lot of my work doing on the ground, you know, education with regards to teaching people about Bitcoin, how to secure their coins, how to use Bitcoin correctly, you know, not doxing themselves or uh, what do you call it, address reusing and all of that. And another important part is, you know, work with Gala, for example, with actually training the developers to build some of these tools, services and projects that have, um, that have the African context in mind. So yeah, really that's mm -hmm. the main reason why every day, you know, I'm lucky I would consider myself to be able to work in the space and actually be this closely involved either from the perspective of an investor or a developer or just an average Bitcoin user. So, you know, <laughs> that's the main reason. That's a great answer. I really enjoy it. That's a great perspective. I love that. Um, I want to get into your background in Africa. You've lived in Nigeria your whole life. I want to understand what payments were like for you growing up. Um, and how they've evolved over time. So did you have any experiences with a bank? Uh, was it common for people to use banks growing up? How have, uh, have banks now taken on a smaller role as Bitcoin has emerged and evolved? Or, or is it still quite common for people to use banks? I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective um, in Nigeria and, and how, I guess, payments have evolved over the last 20 years. Yeah, so that's a great question. I mean, you know, for the last 20 years, that's, I would have been about two. <laughs> but to give my perspective of um, the general space, really, the monetary network space, I guess, um, I don't see, you know, banks or the traditional system being relegated to like a minor role. I think what you're going to have is probably more integration between the two. You know, that's Bitcoin and the traditional um, financial system, again, because of some of these existing structures that are already present. So governments are still going to be around. So therefore, by extension, you're still going to have fiat, for example, whether it's for taxes or just using it as regular, you know, for regular commerce and for surveillance purposes in, in, in the case of some, some nation states. So with regards to how payments have been working, I guess, obviously the majority prior to Bitcoin has been traditional um, bank accounts. So all the way from we're talking about checks all the way to, you know, when the ATMs came in and then using that and then having a lot more um, mobile, specifically smartphone proliferation around the continent and then moving to mobile money, kind of like the digital side of things with regards to sending money back and forth. So a lot of um, 
bank account apps that he used. And then with that, we saw some of the initial startups in the space that are with regards to fintech in general. So all of that kind of spread out within, I'd say, you know, um, the early 2010s. So when you had a lot of these applications come in and some of these projects like, uh, you know, Flutterwave on some of these payment gateways so that are trying to properly streamline the digital experience with regards to banks, for example. So a lot of that has been in play, you know, in other African countries, it's mobile money that takes the precedent as opposed to, you know, some of the using direct um, financial apps that are not utilizing mobile money or USSD codes, for example. So all of that has been happening. But then when Bitcoin came in, obviously the initial intro was as a speculative asset, which is understandable given some people are trying to evade, you know, or not evade really, to kind of um, battle against the existing inflation for their currencies and all of that and trying to move to some sort of secure asset or trying to grow their wealth. So it makes a lot of sense why that was kind of the appealing um, value proposition that came in. So over time, what we now saw was, you know, people starting to realize, hey, this Bitcoin isn't just, you know, uh, number go up technology. There's actually more to it, like I mentioned with regards to censorship, um, um, having like cheap borderless payments and all of that. So what we now saw was a spring up of companies trying to take advantage of that. So initially, obviously, it's exchanges and all of that, because again, it was the speculative reason that was the prominent thing that was taking uh, precedent in the space, I guess, or priority. And then over time, we kind of saw it. Um, kind of explore other avenues of gaining access to Bitcoin. So gift cards, for example, and all that kind of stuff. And then after that, we kind of see more um, services and products that allow you to either send, let's say, Bitcoin to a specific address. And then on the other end, it's a bank transfer that's done on your behalf. So companies like Payors, um, Coin Profile, for example, in Nigeria. Another thing is we started seeing some of these wallets come up to take advantage of alternative ways to actually get access to Bitcoin or take advantage of the asset itself. So we saw applications like Bitnoff that for Chris has invested in. So things like um, dollar cost averaging, even loans, for example, using Bitcoin. So some of that financial innovation in the Bitcoin context was starting to prop up, I guess, around the, around the space that was you know outside of just buying and selling. So we we're currently experiencing um, a lot more companies focused into exploring some of the um, some of the products and services like loans, uh, dollar cost averaging on top of Bitcoin. And then again, we're now seeing more focus or at least more interest in the Lightning Network, which hasn't been a prominent feature in the context, in the continent, sorry. And um, that's thanks to, you know, companies like Bitnop that are constantly innovating. So we're currently having wallets recognize that, you know, the next logical step for you when it comes to Bitcoin adoption or integration is to move to the Lightning Network. So. What we're going to be seeing is a lot more companies trying to either integrate Bitcoin, whether it's the regular Bitcoin on-chain, or moving more towards the Lightning side. Because at the end of the day, you know, we have companies like Bitnow again who are really trying to build out the space from an infrastructure perspective. So getting APIs, um, nodes running, so that'll kind of make the entire adoption across the space a lot easier. So people can hop onto the APIs and get Lightning integration instantly. And the benefit of that is now you have essentially a supercharged version of the, of the Bitcoin network where you have instant cheap um, settlements globally and even locally. So you're going to see a lot more people recognize that benefit and build out towards um, integrating some of those use cases and some of the some of the advantages that come with having a Lightning integrated. And then with regards mm -hmm. to generally using money, it's still 
traditional bank accounts. And like I said, that's um, that's kind of because of the UX situation with regards to Bitcoin and ease of lightning. I mean, to begin with, there aren't too many Bitcoin only wallets, <laughs> for example. Another thing is some right. of the wallets that have Bitcoin integrated are a lot of other shit coins or they have the apps have their own tokens, which makes the entire UX horrible because some of them require you to have either these tokens and then some of them charge absurd amounts of fees. They don't allow the users to actually select their fees based on what's going on in the mempool, for example. So yeah, we're going to see a lot more integration between the two. I'm going to see a lot more focus on the Lightning Network and a lot more innovation around Bitcoin in general, specifically with loans, um, whether you're seeing um, ethical loans or just traditional loans, you're going to see a lot of that, a lot more focus on dollar cost averaging and some of these other avenues, because again, our hope or our goal is to ensure that all the noise that's going around in the space is curbed by the fact that Bitcoin is the single source of signal, because once you have that, then you know you're going to have a lot more developers that are focused long-term, which is what we want. I mean, there is also a moral angle, so to speak, with regards to picking out the the best payment solution or should I say payment network that you want to build out for the for the entire um, for the long term really when it comes to the African context. So we're thinking about it from the perspective of hey, what's the best monetary network to be building on long term to actually get some of these um individuals either out of poverty or get them to actually have some semblance of dignity when it comes to being financially sovereign. So from my perspective, I believe it makes a lot of sense to bank on the solution that seems to have the long-term promise, which is Bitcoin at the end of the day. I mean, we've seen so many projects come in and go. And a lot of these other projects are just basically companies coming to Africa to take advantage of either talent or, you know, the financial circumstance that these people are, are having. So doing like a thousand airdrops of some random shitcoin that has such a, such a small market cap that you can't even exit if you become, you know, rich in that, in that sense in the scene. So definitely is to have individuals recognize that the long-term promise lies with Bitcoin and to ensure that all that building is going around there on top of Bitcoin. Because at the end of the day, for building for a resilient alternative that's supposed to be here for like the next 50, 100 years, it definitely has to be built on a resilient network like Bitcoin. So that's definitely how things are going and kind of what we mm -hmm. aim to achieve with regards to long-term building on Bitcoin. What do you think? What do you think Bitcoin's role will be? You talked about in uh, specifically tying together like, or improving the way that banks work. You talked about loans. You talked about uh, DCA. Um, you know how how do you view Bitcoin's role for helping people who are already in the banking system versus those who are unbanked today? Do you think where do you think it has a bigger impact specifically in Nigeria? Hmm. That's a, that's a good question. Um, it'd be hard to give like a, an immediate answer to that, but let me explore both, I guess. <laughs> that, that would probably help sure. amplify the answer. So with regards to those that are currently banked, I think it's very, very fairly obvious to them that, you know, having a bank account has quite a lot of baggage to it. Whether you're talking about, you know, charges that are done to the account on, you know, things like some random stuff like uh, stamp duties or card service fees, all these kind of charges that are just charged to the accounts, which isn't ideal, especially for people who don't have quite a lot in their account to begin with. So these are individuals that are average folks, I mean. So it really, really has a huge impact with regards to them. 
storing their value or maintaining their value over time. And another thing obviously is with regards to inflation, which is the primary thing. And that's kind of the main reason why I would argue that the ENR flopped. Obviously there are other reasons with regards to how they chose to deploy that to begin with. But yeah, a lot of it is people obviously do recognize the fact that simply having a digital rebrand is not enough to actually get rid of the inflation issue that we're having in the, in the country. So there's that. And another thing is with regards to freedom and censorship. So it's common knowledge, especially in parts of around the world that face, you know, quite high, high levels of corruption. You tend to have the government or nation state clamp down on individuals trying to either express themselves or just innocent bystanders, really. So this comes with um, blanket, uh, blanket circulars or bans done either by the CBN or, or some, some sort of regulatory body. And this tends to affect the average individuals because these are usually blanket, uh, blanket decisions that are made. So they have wide ranging effects on, on the ground, really, when you think about it from a perspective of either having some accounts banned or some restrictions with regards to spending your actual money that's stored in the bank account. So a lot of people definitely recognize that as not being something they want long term, especially if they're looking to either maintain their wealth or actually grow their wealth. So from that perspective, you know, a lot of them will start to see that Bitcoin is the only viable alternative, both from trying to beat out inflation or actually trying to grow out your wealth or trying to actually use it for day to day again, because there is a lot of um, inefficiencies with regards to using traditional fiat, um, fiat rails that we have currently. And another interesting thing is we're going to be seeing a lot more um, mobile money, at least that's based on stuff we're hearing from, um, what do you call it, payment provider, no, sorry, uh, network operators like MTN as operating in Nigeria. So after they did this rebrand recently, another thing that they were talking about was, you know, besides getting 5G rolled out, which would help a lot in terms of some of the internet infrastructure that we have, because we're still stuck in 4G, you know, while the rest of the world is already in 5G. So with regards to mobile money, they already have a principle, uh, what do you call it? Um, sort of an agreement in principle with regards to the regulators, but they still don't have the license so to speak to engage in mobile money. So Again, this will help fast track some of the onboarding process, as we've seen with other African countries that allow mobile money, for example. So seeing these network providers go that route would help, obviously, with regards to um, adoption in general. And that, again, will, tail, will sort of uh, dovetail into adoption with regards to Bitcoin, because, again, we're going to be seeing a lot of these individuals that have whether it's feature phones or smartphones get onboarded through mobile money. And then they can also use Bitcoin actually via mobile money. So there are individuals that are working on whether it's using Bitcoin to buy and sell using USSD codes, for example, and even some apps that um, try to leverage automated USSD codes. So there's there's a lot of um, promise with regards to having those who are currently banned to actually use Bitcoin or recognize the benefits of Bitcoin and to use it seamlessly, since that's the major challenge from an adoption perspective. And then for those that are unbanked, if you think about it, if their first experience with regards to having some sort of um, formal financial account or, or system that they could use to be spending, buying, selling, storing loans, all of that. If that is Bitcoin, <laughs> obviously the, the, the benefit to that is immediately they're having to skip all the inefficiencies we've spoken about with regards to having traditional bank accounts. Because the truth is, there are a lot of reasons why people don't have bank accounts, even outside of the fact that, you know, high costs of having these bank accounts. And the thing is, you know, some of these individuals either don't have uh, 
access to some of these uh, financial services close by because again, some of them rely on brick and mortars to actually even get it started. And with regards to Bitcoin, you don't need any of that. I mean, you could erect up, you know, um, go tennis, you could use mesh networking to get rural areas uplinked to Bitcoin, but also use blockchains and satellite receivers as well. So there is a larger, um, there's a larger avenue, so to speak, with regards to onboarding people onto Bitcoin. So it's, it's going to be a lot easier for these individuals to not only have these censorship resistant bank accounts that are free global that do not discriminate based on their financial system um, financial circumstance, which if it's the traditional banking system, that is something that obviously would affect them, especially when it comes to some of the even documentation that has to do with actually opening up an account. All of that isn't within the Bitcoin context. Bitcoin doesn't care about, you know, your age, your gender, your nationality, your geography. All of it has so is super irrelevant. All you need is just open up, you know, get get a wallet that can generate, you know, a seed. Really, all you need is to get that initial passphrase, and then you essentially have this superior monetary network that you can access anytime, cheaply, freely from any part of the world. So that's kind of how I see both. Obviously, I think probably the latter. So having those unbanked has a larger promise from the perspective of the sheer size of those that are actually unbanked on the continent being larger than those that are banked. So obviously the promise is greater from that perspective in terms of getting these people on a superior monetary network, like I said, which would really help them both from the perspective of commerce, average day-to-day -day use, but even from the perspective of maintaining financial sovereignty, which is a huge, huge issue globally, really, mm -hmm. even outside of Africa. So that's kind of how I'm to end. I guess I would sum up the answer definitely. Yeah. And I guess for the people who are unbanked, this is almost an opportunity to leapfrog banks and just yep. to go entirely to the next level before even accessing it. We saw certain regions in the developing world would leapfrog like telephone poles and you yeah. know, they got straight to internet. They got, forget the landlines, forget the telephone poles, just, just give me internet, give me a phone, uh, a cell phone. Um, and so maybe that's the same, same situation with Bitcoin. Yep. Um, I want to talk specifically about inflation, though, in Nigeria, because I, I was digging into it a little bit. Nigeria has, for most of the last decade, has seen double-digit inflation. How much of that do you think weighs into Bitcoin's value prop in Nigeria today? Hmm. Like, is that something that people are really aware of and are, are, are using Bitcoin to avoid? Or is that just kind of like a, a secondary effect and and maybe like a... A second or third reason that they might want to try Bitcoin. Hmm. Yeah, so like I said, initially with regards to individuals trying to beat out inflation or at least protect against it, obviously the initial routes were some of the traditional alternatives like maybe T-bills, uh, in some cases actually physically buying assets, whether it's real estate or livestock or some of these other you know, traditional methods. But over time, a lot more people via some of these applications that are ex that already exist that you know show you that the primary use cases you could actually use Bitcoin as a savings mechanism. A lot of that started taking up you know some of the mindset that we see with regards to people trying to beat out some of this inflation and that some of you know the issues that come with inflation with regards to the purchasing power and everything. So yeah, definitely we're seeing a lot more people have be more open to using Bitcoin as a as an alternative savings mechanism, definitely, especially from a perspective of, you know, Bitcoin being the best performing asset long-term in the last decade. So that's a huge, you know, track record that isn't 
uh, common around the ecosystem, definitely with regards to other cryptos. So another thing is um, a lot more people obviously are seeing the promise with stable coins as well, specifically because some of these individuals aren't those that are, you know, long-term bullish Bitcoiners. So they aren't going to be hodling, you know, diamond hands all the way for like 10 years. But for those that are doing it, you know, good on them. So for those that aren't, their view is, you know, short-term Bitcoin isn't really that great to be holding, uh, even though, you know, relatively speaking, we're still in a bull market if you look at the chart outside of, you know, a few months. So yeah, their perspective is Bitcoin isn't too great short-term. So we might as well go into some of these stable coins like Tether. Now, the issue with that is a lot of people are starting to see some of the some of the true unique value propositions of Bitcoin, like I mentioned, which is actually being able to use this monetary network cheaply, which is a huge thing, especially for average folks. So some of the challenges that they're seeing is, okay, we're going to stablecoin route, right? But at the same time, if I want to spend some of these stablecoins, I actually get access to these stablecoins is insanely expensive, especially with regards to compounding swap fees and top of gas fees. It's, it's really absurd. So a lot of them are, are stuck between um, having some portion in stable coins and then some long-term holdings in Bitcoin. Now, for me, as a Bitcoiner, I go, you know, hmm, how can we bridge the gap between these two? And, you know, talking with others in the space, obviously the logical next step for us is, you know, in the ecosystem is to actually get stable coins on the Lightning Network, specifically on the Lightning Network, because again, you're providing cheap instant global settlements on top of this uh, this network. And it's also decentralized as well, essentially persistent again, because it is Bitcoin. So if you kind of think of it from the perspective of if they both have this savings mechanism and at the same time have this stable mechanism that they could be holding short term, you do allow them the, the ability to stay within the Bitcoin ecosystem, which is maintaining all those benefits that we spoke about, like censorship resistance and all of that. So from that perspective, that is what we feel would be the next long, um, long-term long next step, I guess, which is to have those stable coins on Lightning. But outside of that, definitely the current situation is some hold long-term Bitcoin, some even still hold short-term Bitcoin because of the, um, what I say, philosophical long-term belief that they have, that Bitcoin will still continue to outpace all these other assets long-term and actually preserve their wealth and grow it. And then obviously there's still individuals that are stuck in the limbo of still having to put up with stable coins, even though they aren't that easy to use or cheap to use to begin with. So that's kind of what mm -hmm. we're seeing on the ground and how we think we could help fix some of the issues we see with people going towards the stable coin route. That's really interesting. Uh, I want to I switch gears a little bit to talk about the B trust. Okay. Um, you alluded to it in the beginning of our conversation. Uh, yeah. For those who aren't familiar, there were over 7,000 applicants to be a board member for this B Trust. And this this was, it's 500 Bitcoin trust set up by Jack Dorsey and Jay-Z to focus on investing in both Africa and India. Um, and so in in setting up the, the B Trust, I was kind of looking through the uh, the Twitter profile and there were seven out, seven high-level goals that you guys outlined. Um, uh, I think there's there's four board members, correct? Yeah. The, the, okay. Yeah. So seven thousand down to four. You were one of the four, um, and now you've got these seven goals. I'll just read them off here. Uh, first one is to design Genesis principles. Next is to implement those principles. Uh, next is to form an entity and a jurisdiction. 
Next is to take Bitcoin custody, then hire a lead, form a communication plan and share setup cost funding. Um, can you talk me through that process, how you came up with that process first and where you guys are in that process of setting up the B-Trust? Yeah, definitely. So just to kind of give people some clarification with regards to the jurisdiction we're looking at, at least going into initially is definitely going to be primarily Africa. But then we will be growing out into other other spaces like in the global south, such as India, like we mentioned, you know, with the starting of the, the, the announcement itself. Now, with regards to the general operation and how we see, you know, our our role and some of the some of the main goals and priorities that we have. The primary thing that we want to prioritize definitely is transparency and community engagement. And the main reason for that is we see, you know, first and foremost, there isn't there aren't many initiatives like this to begin with. So we're uniquely positioned from at least that's how we're seeing it from our perspective to kind of set the standard or like set the pace with regards to how these things should be done in the future. Say let's say someone wants to replicate this across the the continent or even within the context of a country itself. So the primary thing obviously is to prioritize trying to be as transparent as possible with the community with regards to what we're thinking of where we're at and what the long-term goal is hence you know the communication via twitter and we'll be building out other channels but initially we via twitter so one of the things definitely like you mentioned is those seven um priorities that we have so that spans all the way from erecting the entity because you know initially when we started they were very, very open. You know, that's the um, Jack and the hiring team that once you get picked onto the board, everything's gonna be up to you guys to, to figure out. So set out everything from scratch all the way to actually investing will be um, solely in your hands. So obviously going through that, I was like, hey, you know, let's see, let's see what happens. And then obviously getting on the board, I was like, oh shit, <laughs> like, it's definitely uh, all up to us. So a lot of that has been really, really interesting from a perspective of Looking at some of these challenges that we're facing, or should I say goals that we're trying to reach with regards to custody, jurisdiction, and setting up in general, we are uniquely positioned to, like I said, pan out or map out some of how we think these things should be done and set up from the perspective of ensuring first and foremost that there isn't any self-dealing <laughs> because we expect initiatives like that to have individuals with nefarious uh, ideas or perspectives long-term. And then obviously another thing is to ensure that we're providing a structure that is long-term so that can weather the storm throughout, you know, the, the duration of its entire existence, which obviously from our perspective, like I mentioned, being on, being on Bitcoin or in Bitcoin, the, the priority is always to ensure that you're making structures, the entities or projects or just your general contributions in space to be long-term viable because at the end of the day, if they're not then, really we're just the same as shit coiners i guess from that perspective so again with regards to where we're at currently so we're still obviously in the initial setup stage because all well, these things take time especially with jurisdiction and, and custody especially jurisdiction because you know a lot of things are changing and you have to be very very careful with regards to the jurisdiction that you land on and a lot of these things are really just trade-offs so it has to do with trying to balance out quite a lot of things especially with custody as well because you don't want to have a situation where now that we've publicly announced four board members, you don't want to have to risk their actual um, their security on the ground in some of these parts, especially like Nigeria for you know Jama or you know South Africa for Carla. 
So obviously it's to prioritize safety of the board members themselves, also to prioritize, you know, um, ensuring that the interest of the board, sorry, the interest of the fund itself, sorry, the trust itself is maintained long-term. So whatever the makeup of the board is, you want to make sure that the funding genesis principles are still intact. They're still being adhered to the general goal of the trust itself of investing specifically into, you know, towards Bitcoin only. And, you know, having the idea of okay, what happens if there's a Bitcoin fork, for example. So these are things that obviously we're thinking about and ensuring that we have it set in stone, at least to some extent, because obviously there are some things that are down to implementation of the board members or the lead itself. So yeah, we'll be communicating a lot more uh, with the public. We'll be obviously announcing very soon a few other things with regards to where we're currently at and the progress we've made so far in the next steps again. So yeah, that's really kind of how we're looking at it. And it's it's really, it's exciting, I guess, from the perspective, like I said, we're trying to map out viable structures long-term. So yeah, there, there's a lot to still be done, especially, you know, actually deploying the funds themselves and getting the lead. But yeah, we're really, really That's making really a lot of progress, definitely. So yeah, we'll be communicating more via Twitter. Very cool. I, I'd love to get some insight on the the backstory of this trust and, and how it developed. Because I, yeah. I know Jack's been doing a lot of work um, with in Africa and, and specifically with payments and yeah, obviously he's been a big, big proponent of Bitcoin for a long time. Um, do you have any insight into like how Jack and Jay Z decided this was the, the that they should first do this, and that second, this this trust format was the right way to do it? Um, would love to hear any backstory <laughs> insight you have there. Yeah, yeah. So I can't give obviously an exact reason why, but I could obviously infer based on what I know about you know the two and the conversations we've had with both of them as well, especially with Jack is. Primarily with regards to why Bitcoin, I think it's very plainly obvious that they do see the value, like I said, long-term being in Bitcoin. And another thing is obviously if you want to have, you know, um, individuals have access to this global monetary network that's superior, you do need some apps, products, and services that are built to simplify access or actually innovate around the network itself. So it makes a lot of sense to capitalize on the existing First of all, youthful population on the continent, both Africa and India, and also the dev talent that's coming out of both of these uh, geographies, which is tremendous, obviously. I mean, we see that currently in the regular um, fintech space and tech in general, when, when you go to either uh, Fortune 500 companies or even some of these uh, tech companies, you see a lot of the makeup being from these two geographies. So it makes a lot of sense to have this sort of initiative target and tap into that uh, existing talent pool. So yeah. From that perspective, it makes a lot of sense why they would choose Bitcoin to begin with and why those two geographies. Another thing is with regards to the structure, we have to remember if you're trying to create these long-term entities, right? You need to ensure that you're prioritizing, again, like I said, transparency with regards to the operation of these funds. Because you think about it, you know, there has been a lot of aid, so to speak, or like money coming in to help develop Africa and then a lot of what happens is these funds are either diverted into private individuals' accounts or they're either squandered or, or you know, taken in and then cutbacks and, sorry, um, what do you call it, uh, paybacks and all these kind of things, kickbacks, sorry, with regards to how the funds are deployed. And there's a lot of shady dealing with regards to how the funds are dispersed long-term and even short-term. 
and a lot of these issues that we see with regards to funds coming in to help and then five, ten years, you hear nothing about it. So it makes a lot of sense why they'll go the trust route and specifically why they would make sure the, first of all, the application process itself was open to everyone again, because you don't want to lock it in to be some sort of neo-colonial entity, like some people like to say, with regards to having the funds come in. So it makes a lot of sense why they create the trust in that way. Why it would be a blind trust, again, because you don't want it to be locked into the whims of the donors themselves, because there are a lot of issues with that that we see with traditional aid mechanisms that we have, whether it's you know, through the UN, some of these other channels. So yeah, it makes a lot of sense why they'll go through that route and why they'll prioritize ensuring that those that will come on board, first and foremost, have a shared um, philosophy and long-term ideology when it comes to how they see the promise of Bitcoin and where they actually can practically um, scale some of these solutions that we think would benefit the space long-term. So definitely those are kind of the major reasons that I would assume they, they took those two decisions. But yeah, it makes a lot of sense from that perspective. And again, it's our job now that we're on the board to ensure that we actualize some of these um, some of these long-term goals and mission that we really have to grow the ecosystem again at the end of the day that's really what we're doing here we're just growing up the ecosystem because there's already an existing talent pool <laughs> there's already existing mm. um, reasons to hop onto these use cases that are uniquely within the bitcoin context and definitely merging those two together will be the only path forward to have a viable um, long-term solution to some of these problems we see whether it's inflation or just inefficiencies and unsophisticated payment rails really that we have so those are the major reasons definitely i think interesting so so what would be the the differences then between the work that you're doing through the b trust and then the work you're doing through recursive capital because i know you're you're in both ways you're trying to grow adoption of bitcoin you have you have funds that you're trying to deploy um what are the, some of those similarities and differences look like hmm. yeah I, I love that question definitely because this would help clarify some of the um, operational differences and structural differences between the two. So you think about it from the perspective of B-Trust, like I said, we are specifically geared towards ensuring that the funding is going towards open source development, first and foremost, because we see that's where the majority of the value is from the perspective of building some of these solutions and infrastructure in, in general, because again, if you're going the route of a decentralized open network, all of that kind of stuff, you can't be building closed systems and closed ecosystems. It's antithetical to the entire goal. So definitely moving some of those funds, the majority into, actually the majority into open source really. So whether that's, you know, um, initially funding developers themselves. So a lot of that could be grant styled based funding. So that's kind of the majority of where the action would be happening with regards to these trust and the disbursement of the funds. Now with regards to the general um, target that we have of where these disbursements will go to, it's not going to be equity-styled funding, for example, which is the domain of VCs and some of these other funds that we see, like recursive. So that's one of the major differences between the two that you'd see. And again, some of those things are, you know, while recursive could be funding closed systems or closed source projects, Btrust is never going to be doing that. So they're not going to be seeing us funding closed systems, it's going to be entirely towards open source because again, we're prioritizing this resilience and we're building on this resilience. So we can't be going back and saying, Hey, you know what, let's be funding these guys to be writing up uh, shady code or closed code. So that's what, you know, two of the major differences that you'd see. 
But with regards to similarity, like you said, we are both uh, aligned when it comes to growing up the ecosystem. And just to you know clarify to those listening, when it comes to you know the interplay between existing projects or uh, companies that the board members are involved with and we trust, you know, we're very, very careful with regards to, like I said, self-dealing. So for example, I'm involved with, you know, Gala, which you could argue could be something that B-Trust could fund, but from perspective of B-Trust, that wouldn't be something that we would fund again, because th there's a huge conflict of interest with regards to that, unless, you know, maybe we drop on it from our capacities with Gala and completely have nothing to do with the fund whatsoever. I mean, with the project whatsoever, then you could have that. But with regards to recursive too, you wouldn't be seeing obviously us, um, B-Trust specifically funding projects that come out of recursive capital because you know I'll give some more background with regards to how that's possible. But yeah, in general, self-dealing, all that kind of stuff is definitely something that we're ensuring that isn't going to be possible with B-Trust, like I said, because we don't want to have you know, wise guys <laughs> take the position of the board members in the future and then try to take advantage of some of these loopholes, so to speak, and then game the system. So with regards to recursive, so recursive isn't just taking like a passive, just funding projects that will, you know, grow the ecosystem. We're also taking an active role from the perspective of actually getting our hands dirty to building and being involved in the space. So things like, uh, you know, growing out because we're thinking about it from this perspective. So there's recursive capital itself. We have recursive research already, and we're planning to expand to recursive labs itself. Now, the perspective of all of those two, you know, would be like a, a subsidiaries for recursive capital themselves. Specifically, with recursive research, we're talking about all the general research that has to go with um, that has to go into thinking about ways to innovate in the space. Priorities to be thinking about uh, in terms of projects we're funding. So general research with regards to all of that is going to be handled by recursive research, which is already uh, an existing um, an existing uh, subsidiary of recursive capital. And then with regards to recursive lab itself, you know, um, just to give like a background, in I think 2021 was when I got the grant from the Human Rights Foundation. So specifically, that grant was to, towards wallet development. Now, I'm currently working on a wallet, so that wallet will be launched out of Recursive Labs itself, because again, the primary aim of Recursive Labs is to ensure that not only are we helping with integration into the Bitcoin context, so actually integrating either on-chain or LM specifically, we will be helping companies you know, um, integrate that. And then obviously that will be in exchange for equity. So that could be the arrangement that will be going forth with regards to the interplay between what we're helping with the companies and then what we're getting in return, instead of actually directly funding them with uh, with, with capital themselves. So it will be, this integration would be considered the capital that we're going into. So another thing is with regards to actually proving out the ecosystem. So initially right now, you know, helping to prove out this space, because again, a lot of VCs aren't specifically investing in Bitcoin. So we are, we are you know, um, uniquely positioned to set kind of the pace as well as what the, um, the general long-term goals are, or the missions are with regards to the ecosystem. So. Obviously, part of that was trying to prove out the ecosystem. So hence the investment in Bitnow, for example, which is a Bitcoin company. And seeing that investment grow, you know, to quite considerable multiples and helping that with regards to showing investors that, hey, this space is actually growing. There's a lot of promise in this space. 
might as well consider you know investing in the space so that helps with um getting funds into recursive because we're currently raising a you know moderate one million dollar fund as well for for recursive capital so that would help obviously prove out the, the space as well so with regards to recursive labs in general it would be pumping out these projects ourselves you know with the wallet i'm working on as well as helping companies integrate as well another thing is um helping plug into the existing infrastructure that we're seeing to kind of streamline the process as well as help enhance that ux that we're seeing so liquidity provision when it comes to you know some of the either the portfolio companies we have or in general with regards to lightning you know running channels and ensuring that we have enough liquidity going inbound and outbound and helping with even renting channels based especially with some of these onboarding we're expecting to happen so with regards to the general uh general goal of recursive Outside of just growing the ecosystem itself, or should I say within the growing ecosystem, we're kind of being cautious in products we're funding. So with regards to what we consider a Bitcoin company, we're being very, very specific to ensure that it's not just companies that are making the majority of their revenue through Bitcoin, because that could apply to a range of companies that are really, you know, shitcoining heavy. So we're very, very careful in terms of our definitions, companies we're looking at going into and investing in. So yeah, it's definitely to be to continue investing in these companies to ensure that we're also mm -hmm. pumping out our own, you know, projects here and there that we see tremendous value could be gained from with regards to the general ecosystem and as well as, you know, um, helping build out the space really. Like I said, we aren't just trying to be passive investors, so to speak. We're trying to play an active role in the ecosystem because again, we're at early stages and the best way to really grow it out is to invest in these startups, get our hands dirty and really prove out the space because we're thinking long-term. Recursive is here to be a fund for the next 10, 20, 30 years, even, you know, past probably a lifetime. <laughs> so like I said, yeah. like a lot of the things in this space, that's really how we're thinking about it. That's the current state of recursive, similarities between, you know, B-Trust and recursive and the differences, especially which I think are quite important for people to understand so they don't have mixed uh, expectations with regards to what we're going to deliver with recursive and B-Trust. So yeah, end of round. I, I appreciate guess. the context. <laughs> That's helpful, for sure. Um, now, I, I want to get into Lightning specifically, and um, I, I want to understand what what the constraints are from your perspective, whether it's at Recursive or at Btrust. Um, is it a constraint around education? Is it a constraint around capital? What, what are some of those factors that are limiting adoption and limiting actual usage today uh, of the Lightning Network? Yeah, there's there's quite a lot. Uh, specifically, when we're talking about um, building, <laughs> there aren't builders really in the space from the perspective of numbers really for looking at it. So that's a huge issue we're seeing. So there are existing companies that have heard about Bitcoin, have heard about Lightning, trying to integrate, but the issue is that they don't have engineers that are um, technically capable of doing that or handling or maintaining that integration, that happened post-integration. So. Like I said, a lot of the things that we're doing is with regards to ensuring that whether it's through our portfolio companies or even through Recursive Labs itself, that we're pumping us on the existing, so we're pumping on new infrastructure to help with this issue. So like I said, Bitnob ensuring that they have existing APIs, uh, some of these, um, what do you call it, infrastructure, like the actual modes that they run themselves, which they do. But that would help with kind of getting these companies onboarded and also giving them access to existing channels that are within the geography of, of the 
the place that they're operating in, which is, you know, Nigeria, for example. Another thing, obviously, is like you mentioned, education. It's a huge one. Now, we're not just talking about, you know, how to use the Lightning Network. We're talking specifically about developer education, which is where Kalanam comes into play. Again, because the primary issue we're having really is the lack of builders. I mean, even with large exchanges that are trying to integrate Bitcoin, I mean, <laughs> trying to integrate Lightning, a huge issue that they come across is they don't have any existing developers either working for them or in the wider pool of developers that can handle you know, integrating Lightning and actually maintaining Lightning because again, Lightning is in a, it's not something they just, you know, you integrate and then, you know, switch on and it keeps going. You need to have someone maintaining all the liquidity. You know, there are tools and services that are being used to help manage all of that. But again, even with those tools, they aren't as, you know, they aren't at a stage where they could handle quite a lot of this uh, large on-take of onboarding, really, which again, ties into lack of developers to begin with. So. Definitely the primary thing, I think, is definitely a lack of developers. But even with regards to Lightning as a whole and how it operates, obviously there are still some things that need to be worked on, you know, without getting into the technicals of how the network works itself. So again, a lot of that could be a switch, so to speak, with having more technical developers that can and have the knowledge to actually build on Lightning, maintain Lightning, integrate Lightning, and help really grow the adoption with regards to that. And then obviously with regards to education too, it helps to have the um, the public be aware of actually how to use the Lightning Network, how some of these things work, not necessarily the technical things with regards to ACLCs and all of that, but how to properly use these services so they're not, you know, um, shooting themselves in the foot or not using it properly and then causing even more problems that are trying to be fixed by these systems. So definitely education is both ways, and I see it being both ways even, you know, in general with regards to having tank capacity built into those, you know, um, programs like Allah and all that, and then helping with the developers bring up themselves to figure out they're technically capable of handling all these uh, integrations, all of that kind of stuff. And then people in the public actually having this proper understanding of, hey, what's a C, what's a phrase, how do I secure my seed, all that kind of stuff, how do I use Bitcoin, how does Lightning work, how does it, what are some of the ways I can actually use these services, because again, Innovation only comes after education, really, because you first have to know what the thing is for you to be able to innovate. And a lot of what we're going to be seeing is some of these entrepreneurs in the space that might currently not be interested in Bitcoin or Lightning, actually learning more about it and actually coming up with ideas that even us in the space haven't thought of. So that's the huge part, you know, with regards to even outside of Gala, even with regards to Recursive Lab as well, you know reaching out to some of these companies and getting a feel of what their idea is. Have they heard about Bitcoin? If they haven't, we help them with that. And then we see a stage where we're like, hmm, what do you think about this and all of that? And a lot of what we've been seeing is quite a lot of ideas, even when it comes to, you know, the ethical loan space from companies that aren't necessarily Bitcoin companies. So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, things to do and build around, but definitely education plays a huge role and definitely developer talent. Yeah. Are there any particular applications you think will be uh, well-suited to Lightning? Anything that will, like what will, what will be Lightning's, what will be people's first uh, entry point into Lightning? Will mm -hmm. it be through, you, you mentioned loans, you mentioned DCA, you mentioned exchanges. Yeah. Um, will it be retail? Will it be remittances? Will it be online streaming payments? What what do you think will be the first kind of main use case that people start using Lightning for? Hmm. So it's definitely going to be within the context of uh, remittance, definitely. 
if it's literally mm. African spears, so to speak, and Nigeria. Um, because you think about it, like we mentioned, there are a lot of inefficiencies with regards to remittance in traditional systems. So the primary thing being is super costly. And what you end up having on the other end is a fraction of what you actually spend. So definitely a lot more people will be more aware of the possibilities of lightning through remittance, definitely. And again, it'll be through some of the apps that are already existing that have integrated into lightning, so things like BitNom. So it'll be trivial examples like, you know, yourself, for example, let's say you have friends in Nigeria or, or people in that con in that uh, geography, it definitely be for you to load up either using Blue Wallet or Moon, then you send them stats all the way directly, instantly, cheaply. I mean, that's the primary way you'll be seeing that. Another thing, obviously, is through um, things like virtual cards. A great company, you know, which I often use quite a lot is, you know, Pay With Moon. And I'm seeing a lot more adoption with regards to individuals seeing the value in not only paying for the virtual cards using the Lightning Network, but the seamlessness between that interaction, really. Because at the end of the day, if you're trying to do with the traditional system, you know, there are a few restrictions, not only with the amounts <laughs> you can pay, even though Moon has a $1,000 limit for see, regulatory reasons, but we're seeing a lot more people understand that, hey, you know, I'd have to go through all these limits in my traditional account of getting this virtual card and then going onto this service and then it goes, hey, virtual cards from Nigeria don't work, <laughs> or, or your account mm -hmm. has been flagged because you're Nigerian, all those sort of discriminatory um, issues that we see with traditional systems, it's devoid in the Bitcoin in the Bitcoin ecosystem. So a lot of people have been using these virtual cards that are either through, you know, uh, BitRefill or through Pay with Moon. So we're going to see a lot more people explore the space throughout other um, avenues outside of just buying and selling or holding Bitcoin and using via Lightning. Another thing that's interesting, which, you know, shout out to the Lightning, the, the Lightning uh, developers around the world working on this, which is gaming. Obviously, Africa is part of the, you know, a large chunk of uh, the gaming, the gaming industry really is, uh, Africa plays a prominent role there. So a lot of the gamers, you know, gamer friends as well that I have, a lot of them are exploring some of these, um, some of these games that are on the Lightning Network here. So games that allow you to actually, you know, have like a prize pot that you get paid uh, actual Bitcoin yeah. via the Lightning Network. So this is stuff that, you know, Zebedee is doing with uh, Counter-Strike Go, I think is the game that they could play on. So a lot of them have been doing that lately. And from that perspective, it's like, hey, you know, I play games all the time. And this is a fun way to actually monetize the, the gameplay that I'm having, which ordinarily you can't do. Obviously, there are plans to scale out with regards to the games that they are offering. So Zebedee planning to actually add games like Call of Duty, for example, which has a huge player based in, in Africa and Nigeria as well. You know, I'm a Call of Duty player myself. So a lot of people are exploring these channels to gain access to Lightning Network and seeing a lot of them use interesting ways really to gain access to Lightning or leverage Lightning in novel ways. So even from the perspective of, you know, fixed floats on some of these other um, services and how they use that between, you know, getting money, let's say from their salary and then finding ways to actually get paid in Bitcoin so whether it's using BitWage or some of these other services, just to ensure that, number one, they're not holding their money in there again because inflation and some of these other issues. And number two, leveraging the Lightning Network to actually make these payments once they get into their account. So we're seeing a lot of this exploration happen. Definitely remittance is the first one. Then we're seeing a lot of other digital products and services via, you know, whether it's uh, virtual cards. And then we're seeing some of that spread into gaming as well, again, because 
it is within the general digital digital point of view as well. So definitely we're seeing all of that and that's kind of where the space is at, but we're, we expect a lot more innovation to happen and a lot more adoption with regards to lighting on the continent, definitely. Right. Now, I want to I wanna get into one question on education, mm-hmm. because this is something core to what you've been, you've been working on for the last few years. Yeah. Um, where do you think the Bitcoin community is doing a really good job in education? And where do you think the Bitcoin community could improve? So I say where they're doing a great job is definitely with, you know, products like Chaincode. I mean, Chaincode has arguably been the single, you know, entity that's onboarded so many developers, whether it's getting them to actually work on all these open source products like Bitcoin Core itself, or actually going to working on companies that operate in that space. So that's definitely one thing. And the thing that they do well specifically is ensuring, again, is that it's all about signal to noise, really. So when you come to these programs, the primary thing that's made clear to you is we're not here to talk about Bitcoin and price swings and all that kind of stuff. It's specifically about how you could build on this network. What the hell is this network? How does it work? The philosophies that underlie this whole movement, because at the end of the day, Bitcoin really is a movement, a financial freedom movement, really, from my perspective. So. The thing they do great about um, kind of education really is to ensure that individuals have their priorities straight from day one. So you're not going to see developers working in the Bitcoin space trying to just make a quick buck, for example. Whereas in other you know um, products, you tend to see a lot of people just trying to make money quickly and trying to get out and really grow their wealth from some of these really you know unfortunate efforts and means. So that's one thing we're doing really well, you know. And I say we, I mean, you know, through Kala, for example. And another thing I think we could definitely improve on is, there's something I've already started doing and advised others, I guess, and spoken to others as well to do so, is to leverage existing, um, the existing infrastructure we have for education around the continent itself. So if you're trying to um, erect the, like, Bitcoin ecosystems or, yeah, Bitcoin ecosystems really in general, the issue obviously you face is you have to start from scratch, which isn't ideal, obviously. You're going to have, um, if you're going to build up these ecosystems, you're not going to expect, you know, a thousand developers to turn up to your first Bitcoin meetup, probably like two, three people. So there are a lot of issues with regards to getting these, um, these programs up and running. Now, if you think about it, if you're trying to get it up to speed, all you have to do really is tap into the existing infrastructure. So what do I mean by that? We already have hubs and, uh, skills acquisition centers that already train developers to either do stuff like, you know, graphic design, digital marketing, all that kind of stuff. So all you have to do is go, hey, you know what, Trojan horse some of this Bitcoin material into these programs and go, you know, here's some beginner intro material about Bitcoin, whoever's interested, you know, they could have access to more material, you know, through other programs that are outside of that, which you can be holding yourself. So what you'd be doing is if I have like a local community hub that I have, you know, that is teaching them about tech in general, I go there and talk to them and see what they're, how open they are to this idea at the beginning, obviously because you need their approval <laughs> to be pushing this sort of material. So once you get there, you're kind of building out this beginner pipeline, which is very, very key and critical. I mean, you can't have Bitcoin developers that you just spring into existence. <laughs> so what you need to do is build out mm-hmm. some of these grassroots developers. Um, so as soon as you have this beginner material ready for them, by the time they're done, you know, combining that with, the, let's say, learning JavaScript and all of that, they're probably at that mid to senior level uh, stage 
but they could go out to you know projects and programs like Gala or even others that would be springing up and we expect to be springing up. And then they could handle the next day. So you see, all you need to do is really build out that critical infrastructure towards the tail end. Now, alternatively, you could also be doing um, in between. So between them being zero, you know, not knowing how to code and all of that, all the way to getting to that mid-level. So you could be taking advantage of that. So it could be these hubs treat them with the basics, and when they get to that stage, it could be your own project. So you'd be teaching them specifically how to work with um, JavaScript or Rust in the Bitcoin context. So they'll be learning more protocol level stuff and how to integrate. And then after that, they could move on to other parties that are more advanced like Gala. So I think what we could definitely be doing more of is take advantage of existing structures that we have already, because it's kind of just like bootstrapping the entire process. And by the time we're done with that, what we think would happen or what we hope would happen is you have a thriving pipeline all throughout the state. So from beginners that don't know anything about Bitcoin all the way to individuals that are getting jobs, you know, via projects like Gala, for example. So we see if you really want to build out this entire viable pipeline, you definitely have to key into existing structures, which, you know, for example, Recursive Capital did with uh, the Cash Step Singularity, which is a program that is kind of like YC style. So they're going to be teaching three mm -hmm. tracks, you know, uh, the business that guys, developers, as well as the what they call hustlers. So these aren't people that are not that technical, but at the same time, they have the grit and drive to actually bring these developers and the biz dev guys to actually create companies. So what we did with them was partner and actually put in Bitcoin material for all these three tracks. Now, the hope and promise is individuals that go through this sort of program will come out going, hey, you know, that Bitcoin is really, really interesting. And then they now start after, you know, some more intermediary to expert level material of Bitcoin. And then now you can see we're building up this proper pipeline. So really, I think we should definitely focus on trying to key into this sort of ecosystem building from the ground up, definitely. I think once we do that, everything will fall, fall, into, fall into place nicely. Interesting. Okay, I got one final question for you. Is there a particular technology or use case or maybe it's a protocol built on Bitcoin or Lightning um, that you're most excited about as you look forward the next couple of years? Maybe it could be something that the rest of the community is overlooking. Um, I'd love to know what, what's piquing your interest right now. Hmm. I mean, there are quite a lot of things going on in this space, you know, like Nutrixo and trying to shrink down the, the footprint of the ETXO site itself. There are other projects too, like, you know, Sapio Language, I think, uh, done by Marco Rubio or something, I can't remember the name. But that specific project is with regards to getting a smart contracting system on top of Bitcoin, really, a language, really, not a system, on top of Bitcoin, which could be interesting for the developers that we've been talking to. And we see in the space that go, hey, you know what, I want to build on Bitcoin, but, you know, I want to do smart contracting and all of that. And, I'm going to be writing Bitcoin script directly or some of these other avenues. So there are projects like that. And then with regards to the general um, projects in the space, you know, outside of Bitcoin Covenants, I definitely think, you know, the next step when it comes to the general upgrade that we'll see with regards to Bitcoin Core will probably be the integration of, you know, um, what do you call it, op, uh, any priv output. So. That one is going to be the operation code that will help transition uh, the Lightning Network from the current penalty mechanism to, you know, um, L2, which is a mechanism that is devoid of this penalty mechanism that will make it a lot easier to use the Lightning Network because, again, right now, you know, the network technically punishes you for forgetting, which is a huge issue with Lightning. So when I say forgetting, I mean channel state. So 
if you come in <laughs> with biased data and try to publish that transaction, or, or should I say publish or unchanged, sorry, then your counterparty can definitely sweep out the entire channel, which is something <laughs> you definitely want from a counterparty perspective. I mean, it's not like you're trying to cheat, but you still get that punishment nonetheless, because the system is in, it's kind of agnostic from that point of view. So it would definitely be to see how we'll be able to transition into L2, really. And I think that would definitely be the next challenge if, you know, Bitcoin Covenance doesn't take, you know, priority over over getting that uh, operation code going. But definitely, there, there are a few others, but I say the primary one I'm really, really excited towards is, is definitely moving towards L2 and, and getting, you know, PTLCs going. I mean, there are a few challenges with that. I won't get into that, but there's definitely interesting angles from that. So yeah, it's definitely to see the transition between the two and getting those operation codes that we need in Bitcoin Core to be able to actually create these systems. So that's really what my, <laughs> what, what the next steps are for me in terms of excitement. Love it. Um, where can people go to find out more about you and the work you're doing at Recursive? Ooh, uh, Twitter. I see it easiest, I guess. So I go on to Twitter. I, my tag is I hate 1999. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And, uh, and Recursive, your, your site is, what's the domain? It's rcrsv.xyz. Awesome. Well, I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned so much. And, yeah, likewise. Uh, I, I can't wait to, I hope we, hope we can do this again soon. I hope we can do yeah, another update as you guys roll out the B-Trust and as your work at Recursive continues, um, because I think there's a lot of cool work being done in Africa, and I don't think it gets enough light. Uh, and I want to make sure to share some of these stories going on. Uh, and uh, yeah, wishing you all the best. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me and thanks for highlighting this this part of development in, in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Definitely, like you mentioned, Africa is a lot is happening and I definitely advise people to keep an eye out on Africa. If you're an investor and you're looking to explore the space, hit up Recursive Capital, you know, contact at rcrsv.xyz, our email is open. You can definitely reach out. If you're on Twitter, you could definitely just DM, I suppose, if you're really that interested in the space as well. So yeah, really exciting times and thanks for having me. Awesome, thank you for taking the time. Welcome to the lightning round presented by Voltage. Voltage is the industry leading provider of Bitcoin and lightning node infrastructure. In fact, many of your favorite apps and services already use Voltage to scale their business quickly and easily without maintenance. Voltage also offers an inbound liquidity product called Flow, which helps you as a node operator get inbound liquidity easily. Overall, Voltage is creating the industry standard suite of non-custodial products, helping brands, engineers, and startups scale. To learn more about Voltage, visit voltage.cloud. Let's get right into it. It's been about 20 hours since I posted the last episode. Um, haven't had much time for you guys to send in sats or comments, but we did get a few. Um, Permaculture sent in 300 sats for episode 30 with Brian Solston. J24 sent in 100 sats for episode 28 with the Albi guys. And Peter is currently streaming sats right now uh, for the episode with Brian Solston. Uh, thank you guys for sending in sats. And just a quick mention here, uh, I'm gonna be offline for a few days. So all the comments and questions that you guys send in here, I'm still gonna see them. I'm still gonna read through them on episode 33, but I will not be reading them on episode 32. I'm going to record an intro and outro uh, to that episode right now. 
Um, so I will not get a chance to answer those on episode 32, but you will see them answered for you on the following episode, which will be episode 33. Can't wait to read them and talk to you guys soon.